sorry. Um, I got <laughs> I got all excited about it. Do you it. want me to bail you out? Yes, please help me out, <laughs> Olivia. Welcome to Marginally, a podcast about writing, work, and friendship. I'm Olivia, a corporate drone living in Eastern Europe, working on a novel, and daydreaming about lots of other projects. And I'm Megan, a librarian turned freelance book indexer and proofreader, also working on a novel while raising two boys with my husband and making PB&Js by the dozen. We're so excited about today's guest. Caroline Donahue is a writing and book coach and the host of The Secret Library Podcast, an interview show about books, publishing, and writing. With a master's in psychology and expressive arts and a subsequent career in the book world, Caroline uses her experience to help people speak up through writing, all while balancing a busy day job and her own novel in progress. Caroline is also the co-editor of the forthcoming anthology, I Wrote It Anyway, featuring writers who felt blocks to writing, either internal or due to the outside world, schedule, lack of support, etc., out this fall, and she is running a writing retreat in October. Visit her website, carolinedonahue.com, that's D-O-N-A-H-U-E, to find out more and follow Caroline. And now on to the interview. So I am really excited to get to talk to you today, not only because I'm looking forward to what you have to say, but I just have to say that I love the way you start your podcast every time. And every time I hear you say like, I'm here to tell you this is your year. I'm just like, yes, it is my year. Thank you for the encouragement. And it's like slightly ridiculous, but I am just really excited. Like, thank you for coming on and talking to us. Absolutely. Now I feel incredibly guilty that we just changed the intro no, as, of, that's okay. as of episode 100. But you know what? I can I can give a shout out. This is your year because I'm just sort of recording them independently now. But I mean, like each one is a little different, but I'll be like, hey. By the way, this one goes out to Megan. <laughs> this is still your year, Megan. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Now I can just keep that little clip from, from our thing. Yeah, there, we didn't yeah. take it away from the old ones. We didn't take it away. We're not changing the old ones. I, I was like, I love the new music so much. And my husband like got a little pale and was like, no, we are not redoing 100 episodes with the new music. <laughs> I was like, okay, fair enough. We'll just leave them. Like all our love for your podcast sort of aside, we usually kick off and we just have people tell us about their day job and their writing. So if you could maybe just talk about your day job and kind of the confines of that and then kind of gradually go into uh, what you do in terms of all your different creative projects because you have lots. I have lots. I have potentially too many. (laughs) So in terms of the day job right now, I'm an executive assistant so I work basically a pretty strict nine to five. I don't take lunch because it isn't really possible. I just scarf. But that means that I think I would probably end up working like 8.30 to 5.30 or like, you know, nine to six or something if I did take a lunch. So in some ways that ended up being a good thing. So my, my day job is pretty strictly confined to Monday to Friday. Sometimes I go in a little early, but it's, you know, like 8.45 to 5.15 kind of thing. And... I, I work for the CEO of an apparel company, and so I've learned a lot from being there because I haven't ever worked, you know, a lot of people end up like dying to work in fashion or in apparel, and I have literally zero background. Like I might have like negative zero. I do own a sewing machine, but like (laughs) no clue whatsoever. And I I go around like we get a discount sometimes for things and I'll be like, is this cute? And everyone's like, oh, that's so cute. And I'm like, but why? I don't understand. (laughs) So 
Um, <laughs> I think that in some ways being an executive assistant is like being a business nurse. Like they can pick you up and put you anywhere. And part of the appeal for me of, of doing that several times is that it's it's something that I know I, is always available and that will always be needed. And the skill sets are really transferable from industry to industry. So I manage calendars, I book travel, I wrangle people into meetings, I wrangle them out of meetings when the meetings are supposed to end. I feel a lot like Wendy from Peter Pan, <laughs> where I'm like, hey, you guys, yesterday I put up a large sign that said, do not microwave fish at work on our microwave, because everybody was like, can you make it stop? Um, <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> that was a fun moment. Everyone was like, what is that? So I think, I mean, the nice thing about being in a creative company is a lot of people have a sense of humor. And when it comes down to it, you know, it's just clothes. We're not, you know, I, I don't feel guilty about leaving at the end of the day because we're not building organ transplant facilities. You know, it's like nobody's going to die as a result of my day job, which I think is a good thing for a day job. You don't want the day job to be so urgent that it's going to take away from every other creative project you do. And the other thing that I think I've learned from being in this job, which I don't know if I would have in other places is that there are deadlines and there are serious hustles and there are moments where I just have to make things happen that seem impossible and I have about three minutes to fix it. And I'm at the point now where I feel pretty confident that I can figure out a way. In the past, I worked for a CEO who used to be a hacker, now works in entertainment. And he was always like, don't stop if you can't get through the front door. Try a window, try a back door, try something else, try the basement. You know, and I and I learned so much. He's a friend as well as somebody I work for. And I've used that. And I think that the the sort of playing ground of this day job has been I, I never worry about it. And I think that my ability to book guests for my own show and my ability to figure out ways to book trips to work on my own writing and my way to make connections has changed quite a bit from doing a day job like this. Cause it's like you don't have another option. This has to be solved. And so now I feel pretty confident that I can solve things like that. So I think that has been probably the major takeaway from this job. And so alongside of that, I have, as we mentioned, I have a podcast. It's been running for two years. And so I think that part of that is that it's it's sort of the scheduling trickiness, even though I'm really good at scheduling now because of my day job. I have pretty set hours when I record, which is good. That That sort of creates a boundary. I will record before work for people on the East Coast and in the UK because I'm in Los Angeles. I'll record in the evening for people on the West Coast or people who are in Australia or Far East. So I have those kind of times set up so that I can work with everybody. And I've managed to make it so I really don't record for the show on weekends anymore. I do all of my work during the week. Sometimes that does mean I work from 7 a.m. to like 10 p.m. But I'd rather do that and then have space on the weekends. And so along with that, other projects, I have a group coaching program that I run for writers. So I have my coffee shop ladies and I do those calls on weekends. So we do a call twice a month um, and we do them on Sunday evenings now because the time zones play out because we have somebody in Australia. So that always sort of depends on the makeup. We had somebody in the UK last round, so we did them in the morning and that seemed to work out. I don't know what's going to happen when we get a UK and an Australia at the same time. That'll be like, <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll figure it out. We might do two groups. And then I also have individual clients. I do coaching for individual clients and I try not to have any more than three or four at any given time because I just can't give them the attention and the support that I want to. So they, I also work with them sort of before or after work and have all that time with them. 
And I love that. And they email me. So that's good. So at work, I mean, I'm just sort of always on email. So I can have a window open and I just like check in in order to sort of stay in touch in case anybody's emailing me. But usually I catch up with client email in the in the evenings. And I'm also, I'm like, what else is going on? Well, I'm also working on a book myself, (laughs) which has absolutely gotten the shaft for the last six weeks. I will say that right up front because we just redid the website for the podcast and for my coaching. So that was my book for the last six weeks, but now those are finally launched, which is great. And then the final thing, oh, I'm sorry, there's two more. Um, The final thing, (laughs) I'm co-editing an anthology with one of my favorite people, uh, my friend Dahl, who lives in England, which is an absolute testimony to the beauties of technology that lets you work internationally, as you two are also a testament of. I don't know if we would have had this without like Skype, Zoom, and WhatsApp. Like, I don't know that we would have been able to do this project without it. But I'm so glad that we are. We collected, I think we're close to 30 essays are going to be in the book of people on the theme of I wrote it anyway, like people who faced obstacles, either internal or external, and wrote anyway. So that's coming out in September. We've let everybody know who's going to be in and we're working on editing it now so that's good we still have to write our own pieces because we're in it we're like we're so busy getting it ready we haven't written our own um and then the final thing is i'm working on running a retreat with some friends as well which will be in portland in october so long answer so so many things (laughs) no well one of the things when megan and i were just talking just now to sort of work through sort of the flow i mean we I think we only knew half of those things probably (laughs) and also we were like you have so many things how do you do them all like how do you keep it all together how do you sort of make it work so I mean you've talked about a little bit about your schedule and how you try to keep I guess weekends free from certain things but maybe if you can talk a little bit about that because you know I mean for you you try to keep your day job within those certain confines. Other people might have day jobs that spill over, but that's just like takes up the same space that two of your projects take up or three or something like that. So yeah, true. I mean, I've had day jobs that spilled all over the place before and I left them for that reason. Um, But (laughs) I think one of the things that I find is really important and really helped is admitting that I am mortal because whenever I've gotten outside of that and thinking, sure, I can do that. Sure, I can do that. Sure, sure, sure. Because I want to say yes to all these things because they're so fun. I've gotten to the point where I'm like curled up in a ball weeping um, and my husband has to like peel me off the floor. So and he's not a big fan of that kind of Sunday night. So we have had to come up with a new one, which is basically I can't say enough about the ink and vault planner. I don't know if you all know this one. It's amazing. It's uh, this woman, Kate, and I'm going to butcher her last name. It's like Matsudira, but she has a company. Um, I think it's, I think it may be called, well, it's the Ink and Vault Planner is the planner. You can find it pretty easily by searching that way. And the thing I love about it is that it's paper for one thing. And it also every, you you do it at the beginning of the year because you can, you can get one actually that's undated and unmarked. And so you could start at any time. But we like to get one in December or whatever and then get started. At the very beginning of the year, for the past couple of years, Barry and I have gone away somewhere. We're not big New Year's parties people. We're we're like, I think our favorite New Year's ever, we went to Big Sur and like sat by the little fireplace in our room and had dinner in the restaurant and the the, the uh, hotel cat sat with us in one of the chairs and we felt like complete badasses (laughs) because the cat wanted to sit with us. But we would have, um, Susanna Conway has a workbook she does called Unravel Your Year. So 
I sort of bullied him into doing this, but now I think he's pretty into it a few years later. But we go through the whole unravel your year, like leading up to when we're there. And then we added this year, we got those giant post-its. Have you seen those giant post-its that are like giant squares? And we stuck them all over. We went to Palm Springs this time, this past New Year's. And we stuck big post-its all over the walls of the hotel room. And then we wrote different areas of life on them, like creative projects, because he's a graphic designer and an artist and he has his own creative projects that he wants to be working on. And so we put those up and we had different areas. And then we had little post-its of like little things we wanted to do and things that, you know, so we have them sort of all in view, so to speak. And then we would go every time we went to a meal, we would pick one area and say, okay, well, what do we want to do differently this year? Like, how do we want to address this? And then we made up a whole list of action plans. So we kind of know what we want to be doing from the beginning of the year. And then we go into the Ink and Vault Planner. And at the beginning, it has you write down a series of goals that you have for the year. And then every month, it has you set a series of things you want to accomplish that month. And then every week, there's, you know, you break that down. So, and then it has a little checkbox on the week. Like, did you look at your yearly goals again? Did you look at your monthly goals again? So that you keep looking back and reminding yourself, this is what I said was most important to me. And so if week after week, you're writing a list of goals that have nothing to do with that, then, you know, that's tricky. So I think that's Mm. probably one of the sort of foundation infrastructures that I have in place. And I'm lucky to have a partner who's into it and doesn't think I'm some kind of woo-woo nut job because, um, I mean, we also pull like a couple of tarot cards at breakfast and are like, how are we feeling today? Like we do all this kind of stuff. So I'm pretty constantly checking in on how I feel about something. And it takes a number of filters to get to the point where I'm like, yes, I want to do this or no, this doesn't quite feel right. Um, So I think that's part of it. And so one thing in particular to answer the scheduling question is that the planner itself is laid out so that there's three blocks per day. And basically, I consider the day job the middle block for me. And then there's the block before work, and there's the block after work. And so I mark in every time I'm recording a show or every time I have a client, they get marked in the block where they're going to be met. And I know that that's what I'm doing during that time, and that time is gone. And so on Sunday evening, I sit down and I mark in everything that's sort of the big rocks that are commitments in there. And then anything else has to get filled in. And there's things that have to happen every week. Like I have to write a newsletter every week. I have to write the paragraph that goes before the bullet-pointed show notes and the podcast. Like all of those things have to happen. So I have to put them in somewhere. And then everything else happens around those, you know, those pieces that are already in place. And then I try to leave Mondays and Friday mornings open so that I have time to do some other stuff. And I try not to book my weekends to death so that sort of looser creative thinking can happen then. I don't always succeed. Like next week, I think I have something at 7 a.m. five days next week. But um, that's partly because we're traveling um, the end of May into early June. So I'm sort of power recording at a certain point And I know, okay, well, I'm doing this because I get to go on vacation and that'll be different later. Yeah. So it sounds like you're really, really good at compartmentalizing and setting boundaries. Have you always been this way? Or is this something that you learned the hard way? How did you come to settle on this system? We're big systems people. So when you said giant post-its, we're both like, ooh. (laughs) You're speaking my language. I've obviously basically pre-ordered it now. (laughs) It's so good. They also came up with a bunch of new colors. Um, I think part of the system thing, 
I mean, I'm a Virgo, so if there's if there can be school supplies involved, there will be school supplies involved. <laughs> Any way I can get that involved, I'm into it. So, and I think the systems thing is probably, I think I've learned this over time. I can't say that there was a point where I was like, this is how we're doing it. There's a lot of tools that I've gotten into. I like to see things visually so that I can engage with them. Because in addition to writing, I went to photography school, so I'm pretty... I would say I'm equally visual and auditory, actually. I love audiobooks and hearing things. Um, it's almost sort of weird that I'm focusing on writing things down because I would say I'm mostly an auditory person. But one other thing that I enjoy in terms of systems, I think a lot of it I would credit with Emily Thompson and Kathleen Shannon kind of hammering this home on being boss and knowing them. Their chalkboard method has been a huge help. I we have sort of a I'm looking at it right now over my computer. There's our place is like a 1930s bungalow, so it's got old stuff. So we've got one of those closets. It's got sliding wooden doors with panels in it. So we painted two of the panels with chalkboard paint so that things can be tracked on there. So I think part of it is just being able to see it. And I think because I have burned out in the past, I know the limit of what I'm capable of. I did have a job that was really outside of the limits of it. There was a a lot of travel for it. I would have to work, you know, weeks in a row with no day off. I'd have to travel. Like I had no individual time. And so I kind of got to the point where I realized, okay, this is clearly too much. (laughs) And I had to be really organized for that job. So I think that in leaving that job, I still had those skills in place and knew like, okay, I I would have sometimes like 10 minutes to myself in a day then. And so it was like, what do I want to do with those 10 minutes? So I think I got used to asking those questions, even when I had more time that was under my control. And did you, were you also still pursuing some of your creative projects during that time? Or was that just you're only working? Um, I think part of the reason I burned out is because there really was only time to work. During that job, that was when I started the blog that became the podcast Uh, And it was really just because I needed to have some sort of creative outlet and I needed to do something that felt more like me than what I was doing. So I, I started a blog and it was like a very small blog called The Book Doctor. And I am a compulsive book recommender. So I would, (laughs) I, I wanted originally the original concept, which still happens in my everyday life, but I think it's difficult to sustain as a show or as a blog because people are shy and they don't want to inconvenience you, which is annoying when you're trying to get them to write letters asking you to recommend them things. (laughs) So it was just, it just wasn't regular enough, the whole thing. And I hadn't, I hadn't sort of built up an audience there. So, uh, but I was writing that blog. And so I could also write it irregularly because I didn't have sort of a clear schedule then like I do now. So I, I don't think I would have, there's no way I could have done the show at that point. I needed a structure like this one to have at least time I could count on so I could schedule ahead with people. So I have a follow-up, but I'm curious about, you know, you start, this is one of my minor theories or themes that I kind of bring up is like, People, you know, you started to do your blog and then, you know, that kind of develops some momentum of, of its own where you kind of then that that starts to be something that you care about. And then you realize that you're burning out or something like that, I guess. Can you tell us about how you decided to leave that job? And, you know, was it conscious decision to actually make more time for these other things? Or how did you kind of make that transition? 
Well, for anyone listening who's from Los Angeles or, you know, any other, I think San Francisco is becoming the same way. Anyone who hates traffic and has ever sat in traffic will understand. I So my commute from where I was living to where I was working was 16 miles, which sounds pretty like whatever. But it took 45 minutes to an hour and a half each way to do those 16 miles. So I spent a lot of time sitting dead stopped in traffic. And I tried a lot of things to convince myself that this wasn't a disaster. Like I tried to convince myself I was getting a lot of reading done because I listened to a ton of audiobooks. I This was during the era of Serial. So on Thursdays, I would get to listen to Serial, which is also coincidentally why I decided to re- release my show on Thursdays as a little homage that nobody knows about. And um, <laughs> so I think that sitting, I had a lot of time. I had like 10 hours a week of sitting in the car going, what am I doing here? And people kept saying, why don't you move over? But I lived in Silver Lake, which again, for anybody who knows LA, I lived in Silver Lake, which is the east side, which is sort of the writer's community area. There's a lot of, you know, people with laptops banging away. I mean, that's everywhere in LA. But (laughs) Santa Monica is like the beach surfer kind of, it's just a completely different culture over there. And all of my friends were on the east side and people just don't travel because of this traffic horror. So I knew I wasn't going to move over to the west side. I mean, that was clear. And so I knew that my work had to move away from there because I just couldn't deal with the commute anymore. So when I left, I, I took a job where every morning I would get up and I would look at ways And I would look at what my drive would have been to the old job. And then I looked at what it was going to be. And then I would laugh maniacally um, because it went from like an hour, hour and a half to 15, 20 minutes. And suddenly I had this time back and I was very, very aware of that time and how much I wanted to protect it and how much it meant to me. And I was like, I want to be real clear about what I'm using this time for because I can't take it for granted anymore after that experience. So I think that's partly why I've been so protective of it and I've been so aware of it. And I hadn't really thought about it that way until you asked that question, actually. <laughs> so it's like the opposite of you don't know what you have till it's gone. It's like you, you totally knew what you had once it was gone. Absolutely. I mean, I just talked to um, Megan O'Connell recently who wrote And Now We Have Everything, um, which is an incredible memoir about motherhood, which I can't stop shouting about. And I'm sure she thinks I'm a crazy stalker. But she was on the show and she (laughs) talked about it similarly. Like, I think this happens to parents. It's like you have a kid and suddenly the amount of time you have to write or do your creative project is like collapsed down to zero. And so those minutes are so precious that you protect them really aggressively. And I think as your kids grow up and they become more independent, then you, you get to sort of handle them more consciously, you get more of them, but I don't think they ever lose that kind of sparkle and that kind of glow that they have. And I don't, I have a stepdaughter, but I was lucky enough to be presented with her when she was 17. So, you know, I didn't have to do that (laughs) baby thing. However, I think this was the equivalent of that doing a job where I I literally had no time. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually really glad you just explained your thought process behind how you've adjusted to having more time because my so I, I have two sons and my youngest is in pre K and he goes to school that's just six miles away, but it takes 20, 25 minutes to drive there. And there's not even a lot of traffic. It's just the way the the roads here are. It's just sprawling, like everything's all spread out and you can't get anywhere fast. Anyway, so in the fall, he will start kindergarten and we're moving and he and his brother both will be riding a school bus, which for me, 
Although I have these like yes. horrible memories of riding the bus <laughs> as a teenager, I am so excited about this school bus because it's going to change you your know, life. It is going to completely change my life. And I have been thinking, oh, I'm so excited. It's going to change my life. This is going to be so great. But I haven't been thinking about how protective I'm going to need to be. I've mainly been thinking about the fact that their new school is going to start an hour earlier, which means that instead of waking up at six, I will have to wake up at five to have an extra hour before they get up. But no, that's really excellent insight of just I need to start building those fences, those mental fences now. It's sort of, I mean, I'm in a book club, actually. I'm sure this shocks no one. It started (laughs) out as a, um, we read, what did we read first? Oh, we read Men Explain Things to Me by Rebecca Solnit, which is incredible. That was our first book. And then we just kept reading feminist stuff. And then at a certain point, it like morphed into a financial literacy group. So we're reading Your Money or Your Life, which I know the principles of, but we've never read the book. And I, I feel like just as important as your money and your life, which we will be discussing this weekend, is your time or your life. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. you can always make more money, I feel like, but yeah. you can't make more time. So I'm yep. even more yeah. aggressive in how I protect my time than how I protect my money. Yeah, no, I love it. Mm. Yeah, no, and I think if you worked one of those jobs or like anything that cuts into your time, probably also being a mom, like you just totally there. And there's scientifically, there's a certain amount of money that you can make. And then after that, you basically only want time, like basically more money doesn't bring you any different quality of life. And so, you know, effectively, you're basically living the same life, but you're probably just like hating it a lot if you don't have very much time. Like that is very resonant for me. I'm consultant. So yeah, yeah, I think it's I know I agree with that. Because I think having Having control over your time and how it's used is, I think, one of the biggest luxuries, and we don't think about it that way. I think part of the reasons why I've taken day jobs is like because I've been in a financial situation where I needed to. I started a business 10 years ago, and I, I was pretty young, and I was in this. I look at myself very affectionately from that period, but I wasn't very good at sort of sucking it up and getting things done. I, I had to deal... LA is... I mean, LA is LA. I mean, a lot of what... I worked for companies where there was a lot of ridiculous going on, but I've had many, many jobs now, and there's never a job where there isn't some sort of ridiculous thing going on. So you just kind of have to learn to tune it out. And I hadn't learned that then. I just thought, oh, I can't do this. So then I started this business, and I basically like depleted my life savings over a course of five years because I was trying to make money from something that the market didn't necessarily want, which is sort of a basic lesson. So I got myself into a position where I had to take jobs in order to deal with a money situation. And now that I'm in my 40s, I'll date myself. I think I'm just like, I'm never going to put myself in that position again. Like I am such an aggressive saver now. And every time I'm going to purchase something, I'll say, is this worth me giving up the security that having the same amount of money and savings would have? And, and very often the answer is no. So I think that I am, I find very little that I am interested in spending money on other than travel. Nothing makes me happier than buying plane tickets. And also because of the creative impact, I think, of travel, I I cannot overstate how much it influences me to be able to go somewhere, look at something completely different, look at all the things we take for granted where I live is just not even take for granted in terms of a privileged point of view, although that doesn't matter as well. It's more like this is the way it works kind of thinking and going somewhere where it doesn't necessarily work that way. And it could be something really small, like... We've spent a lot of time in Germany and going to a grocery store where they don't have a dozen eggs, they have 10. 
you know? And you don't just take for granted that you're going to get a dozen eggs. And you can often pick them. Like you can select your little eggs and put them in a container. This gave me the greatest joy when I first was in Germany like four years ago. And I was like, what? You mean I can pick which one I want? Like, I mean, that's not, I mean, you're still buying eggs and they were about the same price as they are here. But this experience of, of having something different starts to open up your mind to like, well, what else could I do differently? Even something really small like that. So I think that I don't want to give up those experiences. Those experiences to me are worth working for and worth saving money for. Like having another purse like doesn't really do it for me in the same way it did when I was in my 20s. Yeah. It's just not the same. Well, I like the idea that, I mean, I don't want to buy a house that the mortgage is so big that I can't quit my job. I don't currently have any plans to quit my job, but I often am thinking, do I want this more than I want that money or like the, you know, it's X hours of time I can buy myself in the future or something like that. You know, do I want this physical thing or do I want to be able to have the freedom to walk away if I don't like something basically? And I just think it just gives you a really different perspective once you look at your time and your money in that way. Absolutely. I mean, I feel the same way about there's there's like a teetering point that comes when you're doing sort of side hustles and a day job. And there's a point where you can't fit any more of the creative side project. You just physically can't unless you give up sleep and nobody's figured out how to do that. Plus, I really like sleeping, so I don't want to give it up. But so at a certain point, you have to decide like, okay, yes, the day job gives me a lot of security. And if you're in the US, it gives you benefits, hopefully, and other things you never know. But there's both like no job necessarily lasts forever because who knows if the company's going to disappear or who knows if they're going to relocate and you don't want to move or there's all kinds of things that can happen. So I I always want to like play with that tension. And at a certain point, if your side project is doing well, you have to start to think about, okay, am I stifling this thing by staying in this job to be safe? Or am I freeing up myself to not worry about money and make good creative decisions in this side project. And both of them are equally likely to be true. But I think if a, yeah. if you have that period of time where you're working the day job and the pressure isn't on, like it was in my first business, like I have to make money or else this is a big problem. I think I made a lot of dumb decisions when that was the framework because I was a little bit desperate, probably more than a little bit, if we're honest. But <laughs> being able to build something very deliberately on this is what I want and I'm doing this on the side and it's not the moneymaker allows it to grow I think in a more intentional way but at a certain point if it if it does grow and you hope it does you have to decide like okay am I like keeping this plant in a tiny pot and does it need to be repotted by me giving it more time and that could be something as simple as like can I go part-time at this job can I find something else that's part-time even? It's not like an either or, like quit your day job, you know, flick, flip the desk over and walk out. Like I don't think many people <laughs> are able to have that moment. And it isn't the only option, I think, to give the side project more space and time. Yeah, and I'm good at giving other people that advice, but I'm not so good at always hearing it. <laughs> oh, totally. No, I'm just like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You go totally go part-time. That's great. Become a consultant. Yeah. It sounds amazing. And I'm like, ugh. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's hard to let go of a routine. I mean, I think anybody who loves scheduling and structures and planning and all of that and loves a routine, it's sometimes hard to change it and to create a new one. And even if you do leave, it's very easy to recreate the same routine. I mean, I imagine what it would be like sometimes if I 
wasn't in the day job. I'm like, would I still record at seven o'clock in the morning my time? I'm like, I might because now I'm just used to it. And there are advantages to it. Like my neighborhood is noisy. It's really quiet at 7 a.m., you know? So there are sort of benefits that I hadn't realized in doing it just because I was doing it out of necessity. But I mean, one never knows. We'll see. We'll see how it plays out. Yeah. 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 Well, and I think also making making big changes is it's scary because money is potential, right? And the minute you spend it, it's no longer potential. It's gone. And I mean, I think I think a lot about how, you know, when I was when I was 20, when I was 25, even when I was 30, I had all these big choices I hadn't made yet. And so I my life could have gone in different directions. And now I mean, it's it's narrowing. And I'm sure that, you know, down the road, there will be more branches and, and, and always more possibilities. But you know, you make a choice and you enter a career or you get married or you have a child or whatever you do, and you start narrowing your path. And in a way, I mean, having mo- having money and savings, knowing knowing that you can rely more or less on the money continually coming in in whatever job you're in, it, it, there's potential there and you haven't chosen yet. And so you feel this whole field opening up in front of you, even though that's not actually true, because if you're not actually taking that potential, none of it is happening. So it's not getting you anywhere, but it feels more secure. Yeah, I think... Somebody, I think this was at my high school graduation, and I wish I could remember who spoke, but I mean, nobody remembers (laughs) who spoke. I think it might have been the head of one of the museums in Baltimore that spoke. But it was a metaphor that stuck with me ever since, which is like at a certain point in your life, like when you're young, it's like you're on a freeway. And every time you make a decision, you kind of maybe you get off onto a smaller freeway. You get off from a four lane. In LA, we have a lot of options. It's like a five lane freeway to a three way to a two, you know, to one direction either way. But every time you make a decision, you're like going down a smaller little road. And I think when I was, when I heard that and in my twenties, I thought, oh, it's so hard to get back to the freeway. Like I was really concerned about like, oh, if I make a decision, I'm not going to be able to get back to the freeway. And now I'm like, I hate driving on the freeway. Yeah. I'm so thrilled. <laughs> I was just say it's that. so much nicer to take the scenic road that's a little slower and you don't have to worry about it. You get pretty views. Like there's something really to be gained from making those decisions because making decisions takes a lot of your mental power. And I think that having made a decision and having to give it up, it's like Gretchen Rubin, who wrote The Happiness Project, and you all clearly know her. She's great. Um, <laughs> yeah, she, we have like a, a temporary ban for a few episodes. Like, don't mention her. But I think oh my god, I'm sorry. Expire, I've, so I've no, no, no. Just because it was just every episode, <laughs> we, we could have every episode. I can't, I can't. We're like Gretchen Rubin says. Gretchen <laughs> yeah. Rubin. Yeah, I know she's amazing. But I think in terms of her like her four tendencies and all of these kinds of things. But I think about what makes me happy as an adult, you know, and that certain things when she says like the things that make you happy are different than the things that make other people happy. And I think that I think about that a lot, like just because, you know, I exited at this freeway exit and somebody else exited at another freeway exit, like that's okay. Both of those options are equally valid. And I think that Yeah, it isn't always about getting back to the freeway. I mean, sometimes you want to, and you always can. You can get another degree, you can have another kid, you can, you know, up and move somewhere crazy, you know, all of these things. It's always possible to get back to the freeway. I think it's easier than people think it is. But it's also more pleasant not to be. Because I think that the other thing, the other Gretchen Rubin reference I was thinking of was that it takes so much of your energy to be disciplined. And I'm the kind of person that she talks about where it's easy for me to say, I will never eat something again. (laughs) 
you know, that Mm -hmm. that frees up an enormous amount of energy for me to not be constantly waffling like, well, is today the day? Am I going to do it? Like I have a pretty severe gluten allergy. So I never have to think about whether I'm going to eat it again. It's great. I don't have to consider it. It makes menu ordering more easy. Like, and it frees my brain up for doing creative things in other areas. So I kind of like the exiting the freeway process, but not everybody does. It can be a little scary. Yeah. Well, it's scary either way, right? Like you, Yeah. That feeling of closing off options, but like I think the other thing is there's like another, I don't know, 40 invisible lanes of the freeway that you don't even know about or, you know, like 40 other little tiny roads that you could take that you can't see from the freeway. Oh, God. Right. right. So (laughs) it's like you feel like you know all these options, you know, because you're all going in the same direction. But there's so many other things that you could find out about if you left. Yeah, exactly. It's like a choose your own adventure. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But did you ever, I have this question, I think about this a lot, which is probably ridiculous, but if you know you're supposed to read the choose your own adventure book like you're supposed to read then you choose which one you want and then you keep going but and i would make different choices i would go back but i would flip through and i would find endings and i could never get to them did you ever yes. do that you were just like yeah. where is this like i've tried every option and i don't even know <laughs> which is also like real yeah life. <laughs> i'm like who are those people over there doing that thing like how did they get over there like i'm never gonna get there and it, some of it i think has to do yeah. with skills like i am never gonna be a professional singer i am never gonna be a professional <laughs> musician in any way i see them at that end of the choose your own adventure and i'm like nope i can't make a series of choices that will get there and i think everyone else is the better off for that but so I think the other thing too is like when you see a project or an idea that you're excited about I think it's really important to you know to evaluate how you feel about it I mean I know this is kind of I remember reading Danielle Laporte's Firestarter Sessions when it first came out and feeling like it was revolutionary I did one of her when she was back when they were carrying Danielle and they were doing style statement like that was my 30th birthday gift to myself so I had a session with Danielle which was amazing so I was really into that whole thing. And now that's become like, how do you want to feel is much more sort of in the mainstream lingo. But I do really try to think about it and sit with it and say, you know, how do I really feel about this project? Am I really excited about it? I mean, it's always, I think creative projects are a lot like dating in that they can seem really good on paper, but you'll come up with something really weird like, oh, but he wore this shirt once and ugh. You know, and it's stupid, but it really belies the sort of underlying feeling, which is that it's just not right for you. Or something could seem, in somebody could be crazy, like, oh, he lives in another country and he's got a really unstable job and like he might still be kind of married, but like he's the one for me, you know? And I ignore that feeling in my peril. Yeah. 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 Well, so it sounds like you have a, you have your book coaching business or side thing and as well as the coffee shop writers group that you do. So it sounds like, I mean, this is probably clearly something that you encounter quite a lot with your clients as well as with yourself. Um, And this is sort of a two-part question, but one is what are some of the other common issues that you see and how do you deal with them? And then the other one is how good are you at coaching yourself? Does it, do these, do they go together? Are you able to, to see something in somebody else and then realize that that has been a problem that you've been having or is it how does that work for you i think that i'm as a result of working with clients i cannot i i feel like a complete hypocrite when i don't call bullshit on myself so and also i think my clients keep me honest in a way because i can't give somebody 
advice or I can't respond to someone in a certain way if it's not the same, the same, I wouldn't say rigor, but if it's not the same standard I'm holding myself to. So I think that a lot of what I see, there are a number of things that I see with clients that are sort of universal. And I am able to identify them in my clients because I've seen them in myself. And sometimes they become clear because a client is having an issue and I'm like, oh, that's what's going on. And sometimes a client has it and then I start to see it in myself. So it goes in both directions. But a couple that I can think of that are, well, one is the scheduling thing, which I think we sort of talked about um, and is like making the thing that you're trying to do a priority. Um, another is getting the people in your life on board. A lot of people feel like they're going to disappoint their family or loved ones if they sort of withdraw. But like I basically disappeared from social life doing these websites. And I think as long as you tell everybody like, hey, I'm doing this. It's not because I don't care. It's I just can you be on my support team by like not making me feel guilty about going and doing this for a while. <laughs> um, so a lot of times with clients, when they've had something they wanted to accomplish, either as a writing project or otherwise, we've had sort of a conversation about how they're going to talk to the people in their life. I even have one client who has a partic- a daughter who's a total stickler. And I was like, you got to tell her you have this goal. And she's like, oh, God, I'm terrified because she's going to hold me to it. I was like, good, use that energy. So I think sometimes it's about like cluing your your kind of family or your immediate community or your chosen family, whoever the people are around you, um, getting them on board so they're not confused and wondering what's going on. So that's, I think, one thing that has to happen is that everybody has to know what the plan is. And then it's really helpful. The other thing that I see is that particularly, this is particular to writers, maybe, because I work really mainly with writers. I think we, as language is kind of our creative form, it's it's a sort of a superpower. It's, it's like a Spider-Man thing with great power comes great responsibility. And Often the ability that that writers have with language can get turned into being really harsh and and virtuosic in how they insult themselves or give themselves a hard time. So sometimes you have to kind of choose to use your language for good in order to support yourself. So that's one thing that I see as well. And there are these really amazing elaborate plot lines that come up around what's going to happen if... I put this project out or what's going to happen if I write it or what's going to happen, you know, all of these things. I mean, we're just as good at writing disaster plot lines for ourselves as anything else. Um, So I think it's important to kind of acknowledge that that's happening and to, to say that like, okay, yeah, that's one possibility. But what the underlying thing seems to be for me since I studied psychology before I was writing and everything is that... The critic doesn't get scared if something significant isn't happening. Like, if you're like, hmm, I think I might go to a different grocery store today. It's, it's not like your internal critic is suddenly like, you don't deserve to go to the, you know, <laughs> you don't deserve to go to that other grocery store. Who are you? Who are you to go to the Whole Foods instead of the 365? Like, at least for me, that is not something that gets kicked up um, in those situations. However, when I start to think about co-editing an anthology or writing an essay or inviting a really big name author or um, writing a retreat or any of those things, it starts to be like, well, who are you to do that? Like, to me, I don't any longer see that as evidence that this is a problem. Like, if the critic kicks up, I see it as like, oh, I'm onto something. Like, this critic is threatened. Um, 
So I I try to reframe with clients a lot that when you get scared and worried about what you're going to write or what your creative project is, that means that there's real potential for impact and there's real potential for transformation to happen. My critic, unfortunately, is a little more tricky than that because he's been listening to me telling people this, unfortunately, and started to apply a new technique, which is not that I get freaked out anymore. I get so sleepy. And that's a more effective way to get me to stop doing something that the internal critic doesn't want me to do. Like if I'm like, oh, I'm freaked out. I'm like, freaked out? That doesn't bother me. I'll just keep going. This means it's good. And he's like, I can't stop her with the freaked out thing anymore. I got to apply the sleepy, the sleepy gas. Um, and, and so I think I've actually gotten pretty good at avoiding that. So I feel like he might be morphing his technique again. I feel like I've I've handled that. But I think that's something that comes up for <laughs> clients and for me that is not to be fearful of the critic. And the one in particular that I absolutely love um, is that there are these opposing fears that come up with writers almost simultaneously and in equal intensity. One of which, it's like two poles. One is that what I'm writing, no one will ever read it. No one will ever care. It doesn't matter. This is worthless. There's no point in putting this out. So there's that going on on one side. The other side is that there is a fear that a sneaky publishing elf will climb through the window, take the book, and publish it, and everyone will read it before I'm ready. And they're both totally irrational. I mean, it's like, okay, it's unlikely, A, that no one will read it because you can give it to one other person and they'll read it. That's pretty easy. And and who is this publishing elf who's going to come in the window and like just throw your book up on the internet and everyone's going to read it? That seems to happen particularly people who are writing memoir. It's like, oh my God, they're going to read this book and see what I think. And you know, it's like when you read a journal and you think you're going to die and somebody's then going to publish your whole journal, everyone's going to know. But I have to keep telling myself, well, I'll be dead, so it's okay. But um, <laughs> but these fears of like people having access to your work before you're ready. Um, yeah. I think that those two things tend to come up with people. So we we come up with sort of ways to handle it. If you need a lockbox for your notebook, sure, you know, whatever it takes. But I think feeling comfortable to actually write and not to fear that your work's going to be taken away from you before you're ready. Um, I think that's a theme I see a lot. And I definitely see it in myself, too. It's been, I mean, it's it, that one has been interesting. That's, I think my critic still has me a little bit. He's like, what if you write, what if you publish this novel and it's total crap? And everyone's like, she's been doing this show for two years, <laughs> talking to writers and she learned all this stuff and then she wrote this terrible book. It's terrible. I think that's, that's a big fear that I run sometimes about it. And it does slow me down a little bit. And I'm like, well, it's more important that I write this newsletter than I work on the book right now because there is a fear about you know, total annihilation after putting it out. But I think it's unlikely that every single person on earth would hate it. So I think I could live with it if even one person likes it. Yeah. And also if it feels right, then that's still, you know, like, I think that's what you have to stay true to. But as also a writing podcast host, <laughs> co-host who hasn't yet published a novel and is working on one, I told, I'm like, what am I doing hosting this thing? And then this book is terrible. Yeah. Like at yeah. least half the time. Okay, good. It's not just me. Yeah. Or it's like everyone's listening to me talk about this book for so long and like nothing's happening and it's not going anywhere. And like how, like what a disaster is that? But you know, you just, I guess what I'm trying to say to myself is just move on <laughs> to the next one and keep going. But Or just keep going. It doesn't matter if it takes a long time. I mean, 
I think Adrian Todd Zaniga, who hosts Literary Deathmatch, which is like an international event, um, his first book just came out and he has been hosting these events for years, like big literary names, all of this stuff. So similar. And this was his first book. And he just was like, 13 years in the making, thought it was never going to happen. Here's the novel, everybody, that I've been talking about for years. So, oh, well, it took forever. Who cares? And nobody's like, Donna Tart. why can't you write a book? Well, actually, somebody did ask her that. Like, why can't you write one more than every 10 years? She goes, well, I tried it and I didn't like it. Yeah. Plus, her books are like a million pages long. So They're real long. And those sentences yeah. are And magic. And they're, so, yeah. Yeah, they're perfect. Yeah. Like, they're a million pages long, and they're not just garbage. No. And, you know, anyone can turn out a million pages of garbage. So. <laughs> yeah. Provided they have enough time. Yeah. 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 <laughs> now we're it back even, in the day job. It even takes time to come up with that garbage. But, um, yeah. yeah. Oh, another tip, actually, and this sounds crazy, and this is my critic loves to have a field day with this one. But one thing I learned from um, Joanna Penn, who was on the show, is the process of dictating a book. Because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm actually lucky, and I was pretty deliberate when I took my current job, is that it's about a mile and a half away from my house. So I tend to either bike or walk. And it takes about 30, 30-ish minutes to walk when I do. So I started taking a dictaphone with me, and I would just dictate scenes from the book on the way in. And I found it actually really helped my dialogue to be dictating scenes with dialogue, that it felt more like the dialogue felt more convincing. The other stuff, I mean, it obviously does require editing and it'll, you know, misread when I transcribe the file. I'll be like, where did you get that word from? But it's, it's at least it's something that you can work with. It's not a blank page that you're working with. It's something that you're shaping. So I think that's another way to get creative with time if you're writing is I think playing with dedication is actually pretty interesting because then you can go for a walk and write instead of always being in front of a screen sitting all the time. And if you have a day job, there are times for me where I'm like, I don't want to look at another screen today at all. So I'll write in a notebook, which is a way to get away. But dictation has Mm -hmm. actually been a fun thing to do when my brain isn't like, this isn't real writing. Real writing is words on page, you know, and it's like, okay, fine. That's great. You're stuck in the 19th century. That's fun. Um, but it is something that has helped. And I think that it's, it's getting more and more usable and more and more, um, I guess more and more, um, I don't know, and not complex, actually easier and more effective. The technology is getting better. Yeah. So I share that. No, it's smart about dialogue actually, because like when you, most of the time, if you write it and you don't read it out loud at some point, um, then it's like also insane. So you might as well start off with that. My so, goodness, yeah. that is such a crazy thing with which you say, and you're just like, what was I thinking with this yeah. dialogue? I'm surprised people don't dictate screenplays because it's all dialogue. Mm. Yeah. 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 Because yeah, every once in a while, sometimes it's fine, but then you hit a whole rough patch where it's like you know, someone is suddenly really flawlessly telling their life story or something. It's like, what are you talking about? You're like, yeah. nobody talks like that. Um, it sounds like, um, like Chad's commentary <laughs> in Bullets Over Broadway. Um, mm. is one of my favorites. Um, I have such a conflicted relationship with Woody Allen, but a lot of his movies are kind of iconic for me, that being one of them. But when um, John Cusack's character has written this whole play and then Chaz Palminteri is like the mafia bodyguard, it's like, you don't write like people talk. He's like, go shoot a rack, I'll fix this. And he just rewrites all his dialogue. <laughs> it's so amazing. Um, 
but I just, I, it's true. Like, I think you have to get an ear for that. And and sometimes when we're like trapped up in our little garret, and I am definitely way more of a nervous Nelly kind of John Cusack style character from that than I am um, a Chaz Palminteri kind of badass. That's, I aspire to that, but I'm, I'm definitely not there. Uh, <laughs> and I think there are lots of, lots of little tricks like that. I like to write longhand because something about writing in a crappy like 50 cent composition notebook um from the dollar store so i guess it would be a dollar um is it's not real and it's not permanent and no one's ever gonna see it because it's in a notebook and no one can read my handwriting and i can't even read it very well the next day so it doesn't count and i mean there is a lot of there are lots of studies that do say that like the screen is sort of like when you're typing on a on a computer screen, it does kind of shut down part of your brain and it turns on that critic gets louder and louder and you start thinking in terms of like finished product and editing and not in terms of just letting thoughts out. Yeah, there's there's something to be said for keeping the stakes really low when you're doing yeah. a first draft. Like keep the stakes very low. <laughs> or a third. <laughs> like, okay, whatever. I might just be making a grocery list. It's cool. Don't worry about it. Like so that there's no need for it to kick in. And another fun thing, if you've written a bunch of stuff longhand, I find it's actually much faster to transcribe it in rather than sitting there and typing all of it. For anyone who's ever had any carpal tunnel issues, you can dictate a whole notebook worth of scenes in which is what I did. That's how I learned to do it. It actually helps you to learn how to do it because you're not trying to create at the same time as you're learning how to dictate. So, because it is kind of weird to start saying like, open quote, what are you doing? Close, you know, comma, close quote, she said, period, next line. Like you have to get into a certain flow with that. But if you've done it with something you've already written, it's much easier to learn how to do. These are some really good tips. Yeah, I had three notebooks for the stuff. And I was like, mm, I'm just going to dictate these in and see how it goes. And then I was like, oh, okay, I can do this. But I think if I had started from nowhere, just trying to do it, I think I would have been all tongue tied and crazy and wouldn't have been able to figure it out. So that's my that's my hot tip. Um, how much time have you got? I've got like five, 10 minutes. Okay, well, I wanted to give you a chance to maybe talk a little bit more about what's in your anthology. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. No, I am I'm, this is one of my soapbox topics, I would have to say, the thing for the anthology. So the way the anthology started is my friend Dal Kular, who's been on the show before, she had an episode about starting at the beginning. She, she and I have similar backgrounds in that we both, she studied social work in the past. She's in the UK and is now studying, um, she's getting her master's in therapeutic writing and does poetry therapy with people. And so um, I got an MA in expressive arts and psychology. I later did um, a training in coaching with Beautiful You, which is a wonderful program. And so bringing all of that together with the idea, I did writing groups and I did some poetry groups, but it was more about reading it um, when I worked in, I worked in sort of locked facilities and transitional homes and treatment facilities and so on when I was in grad school. And so I've we've both been really big fans of sort of the transforming power of language. And the other thing we're both really hepped up about is the sort of very limited amount of the population that gets to publish. And it starts to unravel a little bit as you start to look at it more closely. So, I mean, it's sort of like what we were talking about before. Some people just simply don't have the time because they have to work multiple jobs. Um, and even if they do have the time, they don't have the contacts to get, you know, 
to connect to people in order to get their work out there. And even if they have the contacts, you know, they may not, you know, there's just, there's a lot of things because you don't necessarily make a ton of money from publishing traditionally. You have to be doing something else. People may not be able to do that. And also there's just the simple fact of people thinking, well, nobody wants to hear what I have to say, uh, which to me is just really heartbreaking. And I think that the way that our society is recorded and the way that people will understand us in the future is they'll be looking at the books that were written. And if the books don't reflect the full picture and they don't reflect the full population, then that's a huge loss. And it it makes people feel that their lives aren't important. And I don't think that that's true at all. Um, I think that we see, I won't go into this because this could be a whole show, but I I do believe that if the publishing world or the reading people read more widely about about perspectives that weren't their own we probably wouldn't be seeing the kind of political phenomena we're seeing right now no matter what side you're on or who you voted for i think we can all agree that there it's very divisive and people are in a very us versus them mentality and see whoever the side is that they didn't vote for as these other people who almost aren't human and i think that if you read books and you read stories about all kind of areas of life, then you feel differently about who people are. And you start to think, okay, I can see why someone made that kind of choice and and what might lead them to do that. So we felt very strongly about this. And she's in England where she's seeing the whole Brexit phenomenon, similar kind of energy. And Dahl grew up um, in Sheffield as the child of immigrants from India and as a first first generation in England, British citizen, and was told as a kid, like, oh, you can't be a writer, basically, by her careers officer, which shocked me to death. And because basically in England, it's very difficult to get published or to make a name or to succeed as a writer if you didn't go to Oxford or Cambridge, like, end of story. And so I had the opposite experience. I went to private school. I was always told, like, yes, go for it, go for it. But it was a girl's school and it was kind of like, really, you just want to write? Like, don't you want to be like the head of the UN? Don't you want to do something, you know, or if you're going to do it, you better be perfect at it. So there was a little bit of that. Um, I had no end of encouragement from my family, but um, I, I think there was my perfectionistic tendencies got really dialed up by going through the private education system. So we were coming from different perspectives. And so we wanted to put together an anthology that would encourage people and that would allow people to see someone like themselves sharing a story like they had experienced and would be encouraged by it. And so we came up with the title, I wrote it anyway, because we were just talking, we're like, we just want them to know that you should just write it anyway. And we're like, that's the title. And so we collected, we just put out a call for it. And we've had, I think we have in the 30s, but it's, it's all women. Oh, no, sorry, there is a man in there. Great. I'm so happy because he's great. (laughs) Um, But there's, you know, all, I, I won't say all walks of life, because it's not you know, it's not a full sample. It never is unless every single person is included. But we have people who wrote despite mental illness. We have people who wrote despite unsupportive partners, who wrote despite um, economic setbacks, despite all kinds of things. And they are, we wanted it to be both external obstacles as well as internal obstacles that they faced and continued writing regardless. And so the result is a collection that I think will inspire anyone who's feeling stuck while wanting to write. And that was sort of our goal. And so what we're doing, we decided pretty consciously, actually, totally consciously that we wanted to independently publish. So we're just going to publish it ourselves. Because we are donating all of the proceeds to charity, and we didn't want to share those proceeds with a publisher. So 
and we figured we could market it ourselves and see what happens. Um, so basically, half of it's going to go to 826LA, which is a project that supports young people in Los Angeles. It started as 826 Valencia. It's Dave Eggers' project. And then for Dahl in England, near her, there's a, a project called Arts Emergency, which mentors sort of less supported communities and young people to help them um, support their their writing. And she Dahl mentors a girl in England that way. And she actually, her work just got accepted to an anthology. So we're very excited about her mentee. But we just want to see, we want more people to feel permission to enter the conversation. Um, there are opportunities to self-publish and independently publish, and that's becoming more and more respected. It's becoming just as equal and valid a choice as publishing through a publisher. Um, but it does take money, and it does take time, and it does take te- access to technology and all kinds of things. So it's not like, oh, you can just independently publish. It's no big deal. It's it's still There's still obstacles to that. But we want people to at least feel like it's worth trying and that you know, that somebody's experience and somebody's story that they're working on, that it, that they feel, okay, this is worth putting the time in because we need them. And this was our small attempt to kind of make the waters a little warmer for anybody who's facing resistance, which I mean, all of us do either internal or external, but some of us more than others. And I think sadly, the ones that face the most resistance are the ones we need to hear from the most. So that's, that's our project. And we're planning to release it in early September. So we have this summer to edit. Well, where can our listeners find uh, more information about it and then eventually be able to order it? It's going to be on my site, which is carolinedonahue.com. There will definitely be information on there. My podcast is at secretlibrarypodcast.com. And my co-editor, Dahl, is at Dahl, D-A-L, Kular, K-U-L-A-R.com is her site. So there will be information on all three of those places and probably relentless blasting on all of our social media (laughs) as well so we're going to make a big noise when this thing comes out awesome and we'll definitely plug it as well uh when 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 it comes out thank you so much yeah 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 i think that's a really inspirational note to end on so i sort of don't yeah i think that's a good place to stop um time wise but also content wise it's really exciting so I'm really excited to read that. And I just think it's such a good project and really important. So thanks. Thank you so much. It's been really lovely talking to both of you. Um, it's it's always fun to talk to people who both have a show and are doing creative things. Like I often talk to one or the other, but being able to talk to both is is always a real treat. Same. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to come on and um, look forward to hearing more from you. Awesome. Thank you all so much. And that's it for this week. You can find us online at marginallypodcast.com and on Instagram at marginallypodcast. Our email is podcast at marginallypodcast.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to our newsletter. The sign-up form is on our website. And if you enjoy the show, please consider rating it and leaving a review in your podcast app and or sharing an episode with a friend. This will help us to grow our community. Thanks for listening and happy writing. Marginally is produced by the two of us, Megan and Olivia. So excuse any amateur issues. We're working on it. Theme music is It's Time by Scotty Karikaska. Show notes for every episode are available at marginallypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Um, are we swearing on this show? It's up to you. We haven't, but yeah, go ahead. I, I it's, it's a mild swear, but I mean, like... <laughs> <laughs>